Hello and welcome to Made Mother Matriarch with me, Louise Perry. My guest today is Poppy Coburn. She's a British journalist and opinion editor at The Telegraph newspaper, also an editor at the conservative reader Substack. And we spoke about some of the work that Poppy's done on investigating the so-called charity industrial complex, about why young British people are so turned off by the Conservative Party, about what a new right-wing resurgence might look like among young people. And in the extended part of the episode, we also spoke about uh, contemporary responses to mass migration, the protests relating to Palestine, and what the future of the right might look like in this country and elsewhere. That extended version of the episode is available at Substack, at my Substack, louiseperry.substack.com. And uh, you can also find bonus episodes, the MMM chat community, and the whole back catalogue of episodes. Enjoy. Poppy, I wanted to start by talking about the um, the charity industrial complex, which you've written mm-hmm. about, um, particularly the UK context. I mean, not everyone listening is going to be from the UK, but yeah. I think that this applies across the West, what you're mm-hmm. describing. This sort of, we call it the blob sometimes, Americans call it mm-hmm. the deep state. What have you discovered in looking into the role of charities in influencing political life? Yeah, I mean, I mean to start with, as soon as you announced to people that you're looking into the charitable sector they kind of look at you like you're essentially a monster it's like saying I'm going after you know like cancer care or um, <laughs> donkey sanctuary donkey charities yeah. yeah you know I'm going up to <laughs> old ladies in the street with the little collection boxes and asking them why they're influencing democracy but um I don't know so the main reason I, I started to look into it is um I came from like, the first principal question of why can't a conservative government get anything conservative done Mm -hmm. um and i couldn't ascribe it purely to malice or purely to incompetence i was like there must be some structural reason why policies that are very popular um both in government and in the electorate are kind of being frustrated in some way and i'm not conspiratorial so i thought there's there's a reason for this um so i was like okay immigration for example um why did these deportation flights keep getting grounded you know, who's, who's launching the legal appeals because they're expensive. Um, and I looked into it and the first thing I would see, it would be the same names of charitable trusts like coming up time and time and time again. They'd be called like Paul Hamlin Foundation, the Sheila McKechnie Foundation, Barry Cadbury Foundation, Jason Browntree Foundation. You know, they have these kind of late, late Victorian, quite quaint uh, names to them and they were named often by Victorian philanthropists. But they were backing some quite, radical controversial political movements um and I was like okay well how are they affording all this stuff (laughs) I looked into the amount of money that they had and we'd be talking like hundreds of billions of pounds I mean I think the Barry Cadbury Foundation has 800 million pounds worth of assets and I'd never heard of it before and I was asking my friends like have you ever heard of this group nobody had ever heard of it they employ like a couple hundred or so people um but that's a lot of money. I mean, when you think about how much money is in the British political system in terms of parliamentary lobbying, mm. I mean, Tufton Street could only dream. Yeah, yeah. That's what Think tax- tanks would yeah. kill for that kind of money. Yeah. Well, of, of course, you know, it, it's actually really small fry. We're not America. You know, Britain is kind of a rinky dink operation in terms of parliamentary democracy. There's, there's not much cash there. Um, and so I thought, okay, so if there's this entire sector that most people seem to think of as a donkey charity or cancer research foundations and it has so much money and it's seeming to back quite controversial political opinions almost astroturfing activist groups well I thought that that's that's actually an area where <laughs> there should probably be more journalism being done because I do think the reason why I prefer the term charity industrial complex is um you know this is this is anti-politics it's it's astroturfing it's not real that's not to say that people don't genuinely hold um like progressive of course of course we do like i i did um but it's not natural to have this many people who are essentially able to pursue like a full-time activist lifestyle they're not doing it you know through the rooms of the market this is not something that's accountable to market forces or accountable to democratic forces it's essentially just insulated from this and it's because they have so much money um and they're also protected by legislation. So, 
I, I wrote about one, it was like a really random, I just pulled that out of a hat essentially, because there are so many of these groups. You, if you wrote about all of them, you could spend an entire lifetime doing it. And it was called We Belong. It was like this really small charity that had been set up by a student who had just graduated from UCL. Um, and in her first year of having set up this group, the stated aim of which was to, you know, it was platitudes, it was like promoting integration, which is a good thing, you know, this is something that shouldn't seem controversial. Um, they managed to get, half, I think it was a quarter of a million pounds in their first year of being set up, which is very impressive. And I was like, well, how, how has this happened? And she was, um, the lady, she was called Kimberly Grande. She was backed by um, the deputy mayor, for, no, the deputy, the mayor's deputy head of social integration and community relations. It's one of those like <laughs> really long late Soviet job titles. Um, he was on the board of trustees and it was the same group. So it was paid for by the by Cadbury Foundation, Paul Hamlin, like these same foundations time and time again. And even though nobody had ever heard of this charitable group and it had quite a lot of money behind it and it really had like no impact at all. I mean, in terms of society, in terms of community relations. Um, I think they put out like one social media video and it had like 2000 views. Um, they were bragging that they were getting twice weekly meetings with the Home Office to essentially just tell them what they thought about immigration policy. And I thought that's an incredible degree of access to have as a student who's suddenly been given loads of money <laughs> for no real reason. And again, it's not like a conspiratorial thing. It's just that this, there's an entire network of these groups who get to speak on behalf of a supposed community. The government deals with these kind of intermediary forces um, that are just like no, nobody knows they exist. Um, and because nobody knows they exist, they can, they can take pretty much any policy position they want. Now, before 2019, that's not really a problem. After 2019, well, things have changed quite dramatically. In terms of sort of the ideology of these organisations yeah. becoming so yeah. radical, yeah, yeah, yeah. Isn't it supposed to be the case in the UK that um, charities can't take political positions on things? Yes. Well, it's a, it's a little bit more complicated than that, if only in terms of you can't take a party political line. So if you work at the Joseph Rantry Foundation, you can't come out and say, um, I support the Labour Party, vote for the Labour Party at the next election. Um, that's sensible. Obviously, that makes sense. It's part of the legislation that was brought together in 2011. It's called the Charities Act, and it came about under David Cameron. Um, but there's kind of a loophole in this legislation which says you're not allowed to do political activism or political lobbying that's party political, but if you're advocating on behalf of a protected identity, as encoded under the Equalities Act the year before, well, then you can do what you want. That's fine. Um, so that kind of creates quite a perverse set of incentives. It means you can have a big charitable organisation, which to like you and I, or to like anybody, would clearly seem to be quite political, would maybe be coming out with statements against the Home Secretary, um, saying that they were going to ground deportation flights, or saying that they were promoting, um, I don't know, transgender ideology, to school children or something along that, like one of the cultural issues, mm -hmm. something that we know is very contentious. Well, that would be protected under the Charities Act. Um, and that's because they haven't explicitly said we are supporting the Liberal Party on this. Mm. Um, but then you couldn't have it in the reverse. So, you know, a group like Migration Watch couldn't say, well, you know, we're a charity too. We're just advocating on behalf of the cause. Um, because they're not advocating on behalf of a protected minority group. Mm. You know, um, immigration restrictionists don't have protected status. Obviously, they don't. Um, so that, that's that's kind of created this set of situations where your cultural campaign, but it's my human rights project. Mm. You know, like we're separate, even though essentially you're doing the same thing, but just flipped in reverse. What was what was the justification in 2011 for bringing in that legislation? Was it not obvious to a conservative government? that it was no 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 I mean like no nobody thought nobody thought this would happen it's it's like kind of cute Cameroonism like optimism everybody thought um that it would be like a modernization project we're updating the law and um, David Cameron really wanted charity to be a big plank 
of his big society thesis because mm-hmm. he's still kind of laboured under the, I think, what is now been exposed to be a delusion that Britain had a coherent set of communities left um, and that the government itself could shrink and it could offload some of these responsibilities onto community leaders and community groups, mm-hmm. um, which is like a nice idea. <laughs> um, and it was supposed to back up like the idea of the bonfire, the Congos, and I guess to people who aren't in Britain, that was essentially our like slashing the state austerity moment. Um, now this this failed pretty dramatically, <laughs> um, and instead created this like hostile uh, third sector now, which has had an increasingly adversarial relationship with the government, because the government don't like them because they'll point and they'll say this is like a woke charity, um, they won't change the law, but they'll kind of promote the uh, provoke them, and then the charity sector kind of gets like a siege mentality, and they're like the Tory government is coming after us, they don't understand the work we do, they've created all of these problems. So relations then just completely break down. It's like we're repeating corporatism like time and time and time again in this country. Um, and it's, I would say, arguably one of the worst things that David Cameron did in terms of it's now just created an untenable political situation that nobody really knows about. And so there's no real like political momentum to change this legislation at all. So some of the money is coming from, so like the the Wellcome Trust, for instance, which is mm-hmm. quite famous in this country. Yeah. Um, Henry Wellcome has now been cancelled by the Wellcome Trust, right? So this was the this was the Victorian anthropologist who originally set up the foundation. How common is that, right? That you end up with you mentioned all these sort of late nineteenth century names mm. that you have figured some rich guy who leaves. Mm who leaves a foundation after him that ends up being completely turned against his expressed oh, yeah. interests. <laughs> I mean, that's like pretty universal. And um, I know I mentioned 2019, but this has actually been going on for quite a long time. So um, the Joseph Rantry Foundation, for example, um, set up by a Victorian philanthropist, a Quaker, very mild-mannered. Again, like the Victorian conception of charity, giving to the needy, pretty uncontroversial by the 70s they were funding like communist groups in Mozambique you know there had like quick pretty quickly been like a takeover um from the 60s onwards where these groups are obviously going to be staffed by do-gooders mm-hmm. um and what a do-gooder looks like now is different from what a do-gooder looked like in the late 19th century um I think the reason why it became a lot more difficult in like the aftermath of like the Great Awakening, or whatever you'd like to call it, is because um, you start to see the same thing that happened across, like the city, the financial sector, universities, which is younger people with more radical progressive ideas, basically trying to take the jobs of their more traditional liberal counterparts on top. So um, there's one group called um, the Sheila McKechnie Foundation, which is like the charity organization for the charity sector they kind of like speak on behalf of the charity sector essentially and their leader was basically kicked out in 2019 after she had commissioned a anti-racism investigation into the group and of course if you bring in like an external group whose entire like business model is to find racism within organization like lo and behold they found loads in this this, like very mild-mannered left-leaning um charitable group and they said, you need to hire us full time and we're going to hire more people. And also the guy in charge needs to go. Um, so the CEO was removed, was replaced by a younger, more hardline activist. He then starts hiring more and more kind of allies. And within a couple of years, the group had been pretty radically transformed. Um, and again, now has a much more adversarial relationship with government. And that happened pretty much across the sector. Um, and it's probably going to be quite difficult to reverse now. How much public money as well is going into the, like the government putting money into organisations that oppose the government's? Oh, loads. Yeah. Like, um, hun- hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of millions of pounds. Um, Because again, like, I don't think people realise just how moribund the British state has become. It's almost like totally incapable of doing, um, not even new things, just like maintaining the essential functions of the state. So again, they, they're really, really reliant on external contractors. Um, for the Home Office is totally reliant on um, like G4S for deportations, but they're also really reliant on groups like 
Migrants Organise or the Joint Council of Immigrants, who will help people with their legal uh, battles with the Home Office and help teach them how to fight legal battles against themselves. And um, they also ran, I think it was um, the Joint Council of Immigrants helped to run um, the Manston processing centres, which were like a total disaster. Um, and this was supposed to be removing illegal migrants from the country. And the government had given them £40 million to essentially just totally screw it up. <laughs> because there's a misplaced belief that if another group handles all of this work, then um, they can blame it on them. But of course, that that doesn't work. You know, nobody actually knows these groups exist, so they just blame the government. And there's no real recourse um, for blame for any of these mistakes that are made. And the government, well, the Conservatives underestimate the extent to which so many of these organisations are run by their political enemies. Oh, yeah, totally, totally. I mean, like people are quite naive um, still, I think. It's it's really easy to kind of get on TV and say... um, you know, I, I've had enough with these like culture warriors and um, we just need to come together as a country and agree on the same set of principles. Let's hate more lights. Come... Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. But like, of course, you've, you've essentially it's your fault. Like you have set up a situation where people can make loads of money and essentially do what they want anyway. Um, so I, I really don't like blame these groups. I, I would be laughing my way to the bank if I was getting money <laughs> to essentially sue Suella Braverman, but I was getting money from her government to do it, which has happened like several times. Um, it makes it really difficult as well, if you are right-wing, I imagine, to take any of these people seriously. Um, because if you did want to get anything done, then surely the first thing you would do is stop giving money to people that hate you. The thing I find particularly interesting about this is not only the fact that it's so poorly understood this whole charity industrial complex phenomenon and it is obviously very important for all the reasons you've outlined but also to me it it gives a very useful insight into how power actually operates oh yeah yeah because the the sort of this the view that you will often hear from I don't know classical liberals the kind of mainstream centrist position is yes the work are crazy obviously they've gone too far this time obviously um but what's needed is public debate, challenge, you know, all of the sort of like the marketplace of ideas is the solution to this. And I think that you're sceptical of that position in the way that I am, because actually it seems as though power doesn't actually operate in that kind of public fashion. I think it's really generational. Um, So if I speak to someone who is like centre-right, who's in their like 50s or 60s, they tend to hold these like still slightly starry-eyed views of again, as you've just said, the way power operates. So it is it is quite mm. a classical liberal conception. They hold still really really tightly to the notion of like the apolitical institution. Mm-hmm. So like a lot of the older conservatives will invoke someone like Burke, and they'll talk about like the unbroken social contract and um, the need to protect our great institutions. And if we just like you know, rely on these values of like charity and like, you know, uh, legal backstops, this will this will help us return to some like golden age, wherever they place that to be in the fifties, pre World War One, nineteenth century, I don't know. Mm-hmm. It, it will be the same sort of language that's used. Whereas I find with younger people who have grown up either remembering Blair or just in the milieu of the post Blairite, you know, changes in this country they'll totally flip on that. They'll be like, no, 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 we need to get rid of the institutions. The institutions are totally broken. Or they're actively, like, harmful to political change. So they're much more cynical about power. Mm -hmm. Um, You're more likely to hear these sorts of people bringing up, like, Pirate or Mosca than you are to hear them bring up Burke. Um, And, you know, I I think they're right. You know, the idea that you can argue your way out of this now is is just ridiculous. There's nothing more boring as well, listening to the same sort of people who actually have political power using said political power to write op-eds. When Dominic Raab was getting, well, pushed out of government or, you know, jumped, whatever you want to call it, um, earlier this year, he called it a coup by the civil service. And I just remember thinking, like, well, if you can't do anything about it, why? Like, why am I supposed to care? Mm. You know, you you are one of the most powerful men in the country. You have the ear of the prime minister, and you've still been kicked out by bureaucrats, and you're not going to do anything to change it. You're just going to complain. Um, I think that's one of the reasons why people find, uh, like 
centre-right politics just so, like, boring and, like, a waste of time because it's essentially just listening to people complain um, with no desire to actually wield power at all. Yeah, I mean, this is this is a point on which we differ from, um, say, America or um, uh, many other Western countries in that we've had centre-right very establishment party in power for 13 years and we have seen the most remarkable like woke capture of institutions during that period basically mm. unopposed or maybe slightly delayed mm. like do you remember oh, yeah. do you remember when there was that incident at school somewhere in the UK okay yeah. so the story was whether this was entirely true that a fellow student was identifying mm. as a cat and the, mm. and the and the girls were told you have to you have to like refer to this person as a cat yes, by their teacher yeah. and they secretly recorded the teacher hectoring them this is a, 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 a state-funded school okay and um every I mean and it was like a minor media event how wonderful that these girls were like snitching on their teacher or whatever but um the 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 point that really like was hammered home to me is these girls that spent every year of their lives under a conservative government and yet they still found themselves in a publicly funded school being told by a public servant to call another child a cat yeah like yeah. on pain of punishment <laughs> I think it's um people are constantly talking about why are young people turning against um they'll say like right-wing politics or like conservative politics and I just I, it makes me laugh because I'm like they're not against conservative politics they're against you but they're against the conservative party um and if anything it's probably like a better sign that they are more sympathetic to conservative politics because you're not like conservative in any way that we would understand it. Um, <laughs> it's you know, it's just I just feel like it's such a waste of time now for like so many young people. Why would you back a party that can't offer you financial stability and also is just going to like serve up a load of like really really boring cultural platitudes and not do anything about it? it it's just it seems to be like a pro program that people have created to just like piss off the maximum number of people. Um, but you're right, it's, it's not like the only way that like students now feel that they have to record their teachers to be believed in a classroom. Like I, I went to a state school. I thought that I didn't have any of that kind of weirdness going on. It wasn't until I kind of thought back. I was like, oh, yeah, it was actually quite weird, a lot of it. Like we did have um slightly like inappropriate lessons. We had constant PSHE, which is like citizenship classes. I remember them, um, like the five fingers of British values and being taught that every year. I, I remember it really vividly because the middle finger was tolerance, which we all thought was just hysterical. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, we, we did have some of that, but the school the schooling was so kind of hands off that I didn't really notice it um, so much. But but yeah, it's, it's, it's weird how I do wonder if there will be more of a kind of slightly reactionary, almost backlash from young people who um, understandably connect the Conservative Party with right-wing politics, but still might align more with the right, but just wouldn't identify with the term. It's interesting in polling, isn't it, that um, you see a massive sex skew among Zoomers. So the boys are much more right-wing. Um, I, I mean, it seems as if everyone is more authoritarian. It's just like to, to different ends. I mean, definitely, it seems to me from the polling that exactly as you say, that there's this loss of faith in these, you know, these notions of sort of our civil, the tradition of civil liberties, Burke, etc. Like that doesn't seem to resonate. You either have authoritarian woke position or authoritarian right position. And and I mean, what what's your leading theory for why there's this difference between Zoom boys and girls? Well, men and women I mean, are Zoom as adults. Yeah, way. just like touching on the the quickly on the authoritarian stuff um it's not just like young people are turning against it for no reason they have actually grown up in quite an authoritarian mm. state like including COVID. yeah like already really yep. authoritarian but like you can even like chase it back to like you can be arrested if you say like naughty words online mm -hmm. so like why do we find it strange that people who'd grown up in that really accept the, the principles like mm. why would they adopt like the abstraction of, of liberalism and um, of like social liberalism like of course they wouldn't because that's not something they've grown up with but in terms of the the sex divide um it is it is quite difficult I wonder if it's more that like there is still a dominant culture of um I hate the word but I'm gonna have to keep using it of like wokeism and like female social structures do tend to reward 
kind of putting your head like below the parapet mm. and kind of going along mm. and just picking up on a vibe. Um, but if there were like a vibe shift mm. to the right, I imagine women would flip as a group pretty quickly. Yeah. In terms of like the the male men, I think are pretty unhappy in terms of the cards that have been laid out for them. Which is um, if I were a young man and my like main mode of masculinity was having like a bearded millennial guy with a beanie telling me that I have to talk about my mental health <laughs> every day. <laughs> I'd be like, come on, like, no, this is terrible. It's like really mawkish. It's like disgustingly sentimental. Um, and then if like your alternative is like kind of manosphere guys on TikTok, mm. I'd pick I'd pick the manosphere guys. You know, at least at least they're funny. Mm. You know, at least they didn't take themselves so seriously. Everything now is just so horrendously sincere. You have to constantly emote publicly. Um. I don't know if that like plays into it a bit, but it's not just Britain that has this gender divide. Like Poland, which is like a conservative country, has a massive sex divide. Um, I was like looking at the results of the le- the recent election, and it looks like the main reason why women um voted against the ruling Conservative Party was not because of like a backlash against the anti EU stuff or the um like heated rhetoric over immigration. It was because they were cracking down on abortion rights, mm-hmm. and it was like totally like a self-interested, like political um, movement for them. So women in Poland are far less likely to be connected, young women, to the Catholic Church. But that's not necessarily because they're losing their religion in like a spiritual sense. It's because they're like, it's affecting their sexual freedoms, um, and I guess that's going to be a pretty major cleavage that you see across the world, um, even in formerly very religious countries, which is. Uh, men who might be more authoritarian on uh, sexual relations and w- and women who might be more open to uh, the sexual revolution, which is kind of strange. It's almost like they're like 50 years behind us and they're now kind of catching up and they're going to have to deal with the same problems that we've had to deal with. Um, I mean, I don't, I don't know what you think about that, but... The, what, I mean, yeah, I mean, the... It's really interesting, right, if, if you look at public opinion on all sorts of issues and see where the see what actually maps onto what's considered to be like within and without the Overton window. So like a classic thing in uh, Westminster is for a lot of conservative groups to be much more anti-abortion, actually, than the general public are like actually the public are. are, are pretty much fine with the status quo when it comes to abortion the idea of and like actually you know women are slightly more anti-abortion than men are and so on but like the the idea of just permitting first trimester abortions is basically mm-hmm. a subtle position Settled. among yeah. the public yeah. whereas in Westminster it's a little bit more of a live mm. but then something like I don't know capital punishment the public love capital punishment no one in Westminster is anywhere near, like with a handful of exceptions anywhere near as supportive of capital punishment as the public is but as far as I can tell it doesn't actually really matter what the public think about almost anything in terms of what actually gets done in Westminster it's funny isn't it because you know like you and I both like work kind of within Westminster-ish mm. and people are constantly talking about polling and public opinion and whatever oh, and yes so and, and it never actually followed yeah it's it's yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. This is like maybe this isn't this isn't a popular opinion, but I think it's essentially true. Which is like we constantly talk about um, what are the what are the voters going to think about this? Like we can't do this because the voters will hate it. It's like all of the major social revolutions of like the sixties and seventies were done without public consent. Yeah. They were done through yeah. legislation, and like lo and behold, if you ram something through as legislation. People then change their minds because, of course, people change their minds. They thought culture is top down, not bottom up. So if we have this generation of like Zoomers and below who are um, very disillusioned with the sort of post-Blairite consensus, have no faith in the Conservative Party, are more tolerant of authoritarianism, um, are influenced by, you know, the Manosphere guys from the kind of their low IQ to their high IQ iterations, the whole range. Um, what do you think that's likely to... Sorry, I should also say, I, my theory as to why we had this incredible watershed of wokeness in during whatever, 2018, 1920, is not because people like 
actually change their minds because people almost never do that. Like both of us accepted, we've both moved to the right politically, but like most people don't really change their minds about things. It's because you had this generation of millennials who had been raised on this ideology at university and school who had suddenly reached positions of seniority. Oh, yeah. No, completely. It was like, um, do you remember people used to always joke around? It was like a real boomer joke. It would be like, well, you know, it's all well and good being an activist when you're a student, but when you get a job, you know, then you're going to have to change your mind. I mean, that's just not true. Uh, what happened is the the activists and like these, oh God, these annoying young woke people, they got jobs, they got good jobs. Mm. And then they started hiring people who also thought the same way they did. Mm. And like, lo and behold, um, you know, the old generation retires, the new generation comes up. Yeah. And you and have yeah, yeah. And you suddenly have this rush of millennials in positions of as line managers, yeah. basically. So my yeah. my question is, what's going to happen when all these Zoomers become line managers, who are the, the ones mm. who have this very different attitude towards yeah. sort of centre-right politics? I would, like, so Zoomers and millennials, are, they are, like, we are different. Like, I'm a Zoomer. I was born in 2000. Um, I think the main difference between, like, a millennial and a Zoomer is a... Millennials are quite sincere still. I think, I think they're, like, quite sincere people. They're quite sentimental. And they very much argue from like close information. Whereas yeah. I feel like our generation is like really um like a bit harsher, a bit rougher, and um, like maybe poorly socialized, I guess you could say. So I think we'll just be because like Because of the internet, do you more. think? Yeah, because of the internet, totally. Like because yeah. everything is like way higher stakes. Every, every, like the way if you have a conversation with someone who you disagree with. Um, at risk of sounding like you know, like Mark Rubin, um, there's no, like the the myth of the marketplace of ideas was already a myth amongst millennials, but amongst like Gen Z, it's just laughable. Um, people have intractable positions, and if you disagree with them, um, they won't stop crying. They'll just like they'll just box you out. Like you're you're done. You they can't even get you can't even engage, um, because you don't have like a fundamental set of principles that you like, all agree on that you can appeal mm. to. Like there are no first principles to appeal to anymore. So I think politics will become, I mean, I don't want to, I don't even necessarily want to use the word nasty because I think it's unfair to ascribe that word to what is, I actually think, a rational response to changing circumstances. But yeah, I think people will probably take a bit more pleasure in like owning the, owning the libs from the right and the left will take more pleasure in like defenestrating people to the right of them from public life. Um, I think they will be, an even greater migration away from centre ground politics into just purely like will to power. When I get into power, I'm going to do everything I can to push my agenda. Um, it will be entirely like proceduralist, like screw you. I don't care if this like stomps on a set of fundamental values that we are supposed to share because I don't know what that means. Like, what does that mean? Show me these values. Um, so I imagine you know, like I only really speak for the right now. Um when this new generation of right-wingers does come through, and if they do come through, but I believe they will, they will be um, much harsher and much less willing to make compromises. Um, I th- I suppose they would maybe adopt like a slightly left-wing under Corbynite sort of attitude, um, which is, again, siege mentality writ large. Um, and again, to be honest with you, I, I can't I can't say I necessarily disagree with that, even if it does, you know, even if it is incivil. Um, because I'm just I think everybody's just bored of nothing happening. Everybody's just getting very frustrated that um nothing seems to be working. So people do just want competence more so than they want ideology. Um, and any any group that can offer competence will win. I, I think that's really what like the next decade will be. We're waiting for, you know to use a like cringe centrist dad opinion, the grown-ups in the room to come back. Um, and I don't think these grown-ups will be the elderly. <laughs> the impression that I've got, at least from um, British British Zuma right and younger, is, um, correct me if I'm wrong, because you'll know better than me, quite different from like the old, there's this old stereotype of the sort of like the young William, the young fogies, the William O'Hagan mm. and tweed suits kind of mm. like, branch of young conservatism um that seems to me to be basically dead there's very little tweed right wing on on um on like all cultural issues obviously but not actually very interested in religion 
not very yep. interested in the monarchy, like mm-hmm. quite quite very unsentimental actually about those kind mm-hmm. of aspects of traditional British life. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You agree that that seems to be a, like a pronounced trend among the yeah. consumer right? Absolutely. Like, um, I I was at Conservative Party conference and um, it was really interesting talking to. You. The kind of teenage activists. I mean, first of all, they they don't even look the way they used to. Um, I I was definitely at university. I, I like. I remember looking at the young toys and being like, "You guys look like nerds." Um, you just want to sit around and like talk about William Hague all day. And I was like, "I'm not interested in that." Mm-hmm. You know. Um, and it's really interesting to see how it's kind of flipped. Whereas all of like the energy, the ideas, um again like very unsentimental very much like we just want to get stuff done we don't care what it takes to get that done like we just want to get into power like that's all that matters so the sort of people that they'll like bring up as like the intellectual inspirations will be like so alien from someone who was born like 30 years before and um, i mean they don't even talk about like Thatcher really mm. anymore um which is probably long overdue because she's she is a historical figure mm-hmm. you know? <laughs> if you're if you are born like 10 of the 21st century she is a historical figure to you and mm-hmm. um, when you use like a platitude about for example a former mining town or you bring up that legacy of empire or something you just get like a blank stare it's like what is that that means nothing to me you know, this means nothing to me this has nothing to do with my life this is not the world that I grew up in people are creating their own kind of political myths and um like frameworks that they work around um but that's create that's going to create an intractable problem right because if the new right is so alien to the old right um, and actively quite hostile towards it because they see them as essentially at fault and really as the enemy, mm-hmm. sometimes more so than they see left-wingers as, as an enemy, they see them as traitors. Yeah. Um, if there is going to be a takeover, say the Conservative Party, um, how, how I don't see how that's going to work because it would be so hostile. Um, I don't think people would be willing to do the traditional well, you're a young man, put your head down, you know, knock on doors, and in 10 years' time, maybe I'll select you for a seat that you're going to lose. Um, or you could be a bad carrier for, like, five years. I, I don't believe that these young men, and it is mostly men, are going to do that, and, or, or why they would want to do that. They don't have respect for the institution, so so why would they waste their time engaging with it? Um so I don't know where that energy is actually going to go into. I don't easily see it move to the Conservative Party. It's funny, isn't it? There's been all this hand-wringing in, like, liberal media for a long time about this sort of, like, secret cabal of young right-wingers and, and you know, who are so much more sinister than you realise and whatever. Um, I don't think that... I, th- I don't think that's generally... I don't think that has generally been true up until now, but it kind of maybe is. But in a sense, it's been... It, there's been a, almost like a wish fulfillment in that progressivism yes. has been so aggressive that it has actually created a young, very disillusioned class of mostly mm-hmm. young men um, yeah. who, yeah, who are very, having met um, quite a few of them at NatCon and places like that, mm. um, I, I also was struck by the fact that there is absolutely no tweed to be seen. And actually these no. are often very like socially confident Oh, looking yeah. like yeah yeah normal like um, normal people who wouldn't engage in politics normally as well I, I think um it, w- what's interesting it's like there's no like self-mythologizing so I, I think a lot of like the young fogey stuff was obviously like an affectation there's no like mm-hmm. affectation to these people mm-hmm. and one of the reasons why um I was like talking to someone who's like on the center left and they were like, oh, it's so dangerous, it's so scary. And I was like, well, why, why do you find these people scary? Because they have no political power. And, like, they seem, at, at the moment, most of this young right, like, faction exists on, like, Twitter. Mm-hmm. Um, so, like, well, well, how could you be scared of these people? Come on, you're being hysterical. And they were like, well, because when you speak to them and you say, you can't say that, that's unacceptable for this reason, this reason, this reason, they go, I don't care. They're like, so? Yeah. So there's no way of, like, scolding yeah. them anymore. Um, and if you again, if you lose that like common like cultural re- frame of reference, where I say we all agree that this is the line, like you can't cross that line. Mm. And if they go, well, I'm going to cross it. I don't care. That means nothing to me. Well, then how how do you respond? I don't know if you saw the video of Owen Jane speaking to that. Um, like like t- he must have been like a teenager. It was at the Conservative Party conference, 
Yeah. And I think they were talking about like Enoch Powell and like multiculturalism. Mm-hmm. And like this guy, this guy, he was like maybe, I don't know, he must have been like 1920. Yeah. Um, I think that he was found later. He's an undergraduate. So yeah, right. he's like he's like 19. Yeah. yeah. And like probably really hungover. Like, <laughs> you know, um, someone's just like, Owen James just stuck a microphone in his face and has mm-hmm. asked him a really controversial leading question. Mm-hmm. And um he essentially responded by saying, well, yeah, no, I, I think Enoch Powell is fine. And here are the reasons why. And it's really bizarre watching Owen, who's like, you know, I, I disagree with him, but he's not like a stupid person. Just go, well, how, how could you possibly say that? That's a disgusting Yeah, he really flounders. It's amazing. He really yeah. floundered. Because he tried to argue from a position, again, of like, almost like, I'm upset. Like, how could you do this? Like, how could you possibly believe that? Um, and I don't know, if, if I were on the centre-left and that was the best thing I could come up with against a hungover undergraduate, I'd be really concerned because in the same way that the yeah. young wokers took over institutions um, like 15 years ago and then we started to see the consequences of it, these young right-wingers are also growing up and they're also moving into institutions and they're also going to get good jobs and they're going to go into politics. And if your yeah. best rebuttal to them is you're being mean and I don't like it, you may as well just give up. <laughs> you know, that's that is such a weak position to be arguing from. Yeah, um, yeah. Because so, so if 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 we're right about the crucial thing just being reaching a, like a sufficient level of seniority to have influence within an institution, then we're looking at maybe ten years until these people in their early mid twenties are in positions of seniority, or maybe a bit sooner. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then you could see some quite significant watershed stuff going on. One of the things that they uh, this this what are we calling them like the new right whatever that they are um hostile to is also um post-liberalism yeah you and I both worked at unheard back when post-liberalism mm-hmm. was like was was like was the new thing that was the thing. yeah really pre-covid I would say mm-hmm. I mean one of the things that yeah. Mary Harrington likes to say is that we discovered during covid that we were already in a post-liberal future it just wasn't what we ordered like it became evident that actually liberalism was not was not operating anywhere what's your critique of the post-liberal position so the one that that really um the sort of like economically left culturally right combination which is very um committed to to things like communitarianism i have many post-liberal friends Um, some of my best friends are post liberals. Yep. Okay. <laughs> some of my best friends are post liberal. Okay. Um, so like not all post liberals, but <laughs> the reason I hate it, um, maybe hate too strong a word, but it's probably like slightly close to to what I believe now. Certainly to see it invoked in 2023, um, in the current year, is it's not just that they've already won. It's that the idea that the problems of Britain today is that we are a that cutthroat Gordon Gecko. Um, like hyper individualistic state you could only possibly believe that if you also believe that fairies still exist at the bottom of your garden and that thomas the tank engine can speak um it's it's so like fantasy world mania i i agree that britain has like fundamental problems of you know we don't have community structures anymore and or we do have community structures but they're different they're not face-to-face they're like maybe they're online structures they're like deracinated whatever um yeah that sucks it's a shame and it's a shame that people don't have a common um like christian morality framework which we can all kind of ascribe to which probably made a lot of people happier and it's a shame that families break down blah 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 but the idea that the solution to that is to just do cameroonism again but like slightly harder this time i i just find really really bizarre for kind of the same sort of reasons we spoke about initially which is um you might agree that the problems that Britain faces today are loneliness or something, but your policy solutions to it are so mad and are going to be so damaging um, that I actually just don't think <laughs> these people should be taken seriously. And again, the reason why COVID exposed the kind of post-liberal delusion, as it were, is because COVID was, like our response to COVID was totally post-liberal. We acted in mm. the common good in, in the way that that's actually understood. We to protect the lives of the elderly and the weak and the frail. Um, we locked down the economically productive sections of uh, the workplace uh, for like two two years. 
and this was always spoken about in the in the language of protecting the weak and looking out for the border national community. Um, it was like really emotionally charged. It was like you know, look her in the eyes and tell her you're going to go to a underground rave <laughs> at university. And um, it was all on the basis of scolding. People were encouraged to kind of snitch on their neighbours, and like this is post liberalism. A lot of it is is post liberal ideology. And um, it's a it's a little bit difficult when I speak to Americans as well because what they think of as post liberalism is like kind of Catholic legitimism, which is even more niche. Um, Post-liberalism, I would describe in Britain, would be, again, like a communitarian tradition. Um, they often consider themselves to be like slightly left-wing. Um, Margaret Thatcher is like the ultimate boogeyman. Neoliberalism is like miasma. It's like in the air all around us. Um, you know, Trotsky spoke of Hitler particles. We've apparently all got like Mary Rothbard particles that have you know, got into our lungs. Um, there's this idea that Britain is this like vital, highly financialized state which is uh, leaving behind um, these nice church-going old ladies and retired colonels. And it's like, again, these people don't exist. They died like 40 years ago. That is just not the Britain of today. So if I were a Conservative Party, you know, higher up, and I was like, how am I going to get people on board? Who, who's going to vote for us now? I wouldn't rely on an imaginary electorate that I want to exist in my head. I would probably try and go for people that actually do exist. And, and who, who does exist now? Uh, young people who have grown up in a totally sclerotic economy um, with no opportunity for economic growth, with actually very little freedom because they don't have financial freedom. So they're like stuck in multi-generational households, which is like totally alien to the Anglo tradition. Um, people who were told to lock down for the sick and the elderly for two and a half years. Um, people who were given the opportunity of higher education, which is barely worth the paper it was printed on. I've entered a really crappy graduate economy and um, maybe can't afford to move out of their hometown. Like internal migration is really, really poor. And also have like people who are older than them constantly shouting at them and saying, you're woke. Um, you hate the values that this country was built upon. Values that mean literally nothing to you. Post-liberalism is not the way forward. I, I just, I just think it's, um, you know, it, it's, it's everything that's kind of gone wrong. And like the conservative right in the last five years. I think sometimes, um, not speaking to everyone who who has sort of amassed under the post-liberal banner, but certainly I can think of a few cases where it's ended up being like uh, uh, a staging post on the way to being more right-wing. Yeah. Because it's it a way me. of expressing... Right, yeah. Um, it's a way of expressing some, like, conservative ideas in a nicer-sounding way. Right, um, right. And are you probably... You, you, I mean, again, I think we've probably come on, like, a similar political journey I, I I find it difficult sometimes because you, it does feel like it does feel nasty sometimes and I think some people do take like slight pleasure in that when you're speaking truth to power and you're just like look I'm just stating facts okay um we can't afford to like prop up this massive like welfare state anymore we don't have enough money for it we're mm -hmm. post-prosperity now we're gonna have mm -hmm. to make difficult decisions um, it's actually really not fun saying that and it's nice to think you're coming up with some new fresh political vision where you can kind of square the circle as it were and also it's you know post-liberalism yeah. is normally discussed as a cultural phenomena it's not an economic one so um, I, I don't know of any like prominent post-liberal thinkers who have like an economic doctrine beyond like corporatism um so again, that's why I kind of use the slightly rude analogy of the fairies at the bottom of the garden, because it is essentially just, um, it's just vibes. There's not really like a coherent political programme behind any of this. Um, it's again just a... Well, it's a, it's, a, it's, it's a really yeah. reactionary ideology. Like it really is a reactionary ideology. Um, yeah, it's a critique It's a critique of liberalism and, and that's like, that's, that's it, um, yeah. generally. But liberalism um, is dead. Like, liberalism hasn't existed yeah. for like... I would say a hundred years. Like lib liberalism is not something that existed during the age of mass politics because it was impossible. Um, you know, I I I I think American theorists, I can't remember the name of who first came up with this, you know, described the 20th century as the era of like mass democracy instead. Which makes way more sense. Um we are now out of that epoch, I'd say, because again, people just aren't marching on this well, some of them are, but 
you don't have the kind of like protracted street battles anymore. Most people are kind of switched off. More and more people are switching off from political engagement. Um, I don't know what you'd call this epoch. I mean, I, I, I call it like stakeholderism, but I don't think that's going to catch on. It's not really catchy. Um, but the idea that like the problems of Britain today are liberal problems is just crazy. Like no liberal thinker would have any conception of the idea of like funding an arts council that is like hostile to you having like a gigantic welfare state and um, sending loads of money abroad for foreign aid. Like th- these are not liberal ideas at all. Um, mm. It's just difficult to like separate liberalism as it like was, as it actually existed as a political phenomena and like liberalism as like pejorative. Um, but like the, they're like totally separate things. They're not the same thing. So yeah, I, like post-liberals, most of them are very nice, but I think they're going to be seen as like a kind of quaint, you know, small splinter movement that died out pretty quickly and, and, and probably didn't leave much of a mark, you know. I can, and I can see why they're particularly worried about the rise of the new, 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 new right in Britain, um, who, again, are like kind of exactly what they would state as their biggest fear, which is um, like quite ruthless, very self-interested, uninterested in ideology, really. Um, and like pure competence based like materialist when you say self-interested like who's the self the the, the young um yeah professional who's having who's been given really tough material circumstances to contend with yeah yeah it's kind of um it's like a, again it's like a return to um like client patron politics as like an ideal it's like we've spoken like so much of westminster is like high-minded ideals um maybe it is like a legacy of empire um, but like the idea that you have to do like nation building in Afghanistan and um, we have to like intercede in every single conflict around the world and give our opinion on it. And the idea of like something of being a good look and we need to represent ourselves in the international stage. And I would say for, um, and this is certainly what I believe, I would say, well, like, I don't care about that. Like, how does it affect us? I, w- I would just like British politicians to like, turn around and say, OK, what's this going to mean for us? Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like that's kind of a weirdly alien concept. So sometimes they will just, like sometimes people in senior positions of power will just say quite straightforwardly, like that their that their priority is not their citizens. Like the line from Mandelson about um, back in the nineties about rubbing the right's nose in diversity by hugely increasing immigration numbers. Like it, clearly the like there to some extent the intent always was not actually to prioritise the interests of the British people. Yeah, and I think, like, again, with this, like, um, new... I'm going to have to think of a better term than new right, but, like, younger, like, right-wingers in this country are kind of just doing the same thing, but um, from, like, a slightly different position. I don't mean in terms of, like, thinking on behalf of a global community. I mean in, like, taking pleasure in, like, owning the lips, um, mm. which is really like a lot of new labor policy is like owning the cons you know it's mm. it's um taking pleasure in saying that like you're out of date you need to be forcibly like pulled into modernity and it doesn't matter how much you kick and scream and cry um we're just going to do it anyway because it's for your own good mm. and the right didn't do that and um, quite the opposite really and um, so we've had 13 years of conservative government and there's never really been a moment where they've been like we're going to forcibly modernise the country in our own vision and we're going to do it very quickly and we're going to do it through quite cynical manipulation of like institutional power. Um, and I imagine this is just going to be like a natural backlash to like 25 years of political machinations um, that will may- maybe come. I, do, I mean, again, I don't know when, you know, it, it, conservative politics will shift in this country, but I, I do genuinely really believe they will. Mm. Um, I imagine there'll be like a certain section who are taking like great pleasure and essentially saying we're attend first principles unless you can like very harshly justify your political movement in terms of like self-interest. We're just not interested. Like we're not going to do that. We don't care. Um, and like, there's no way that you can hector me into caring. There's no way that you can like kind of get emotional. Um, I'm like very hard nosed about this. I'm just going to do it. But you're right. Like, the rubbing your nose is an idea of diversity thing is so it's like such a kind of sick mindset to have when you see the consequences of where that led 
um, I, I was having a conversation with my mum yesterday who works um, around like social care and she was like have you read this thing in the Daily Mail I was like you're gonna have to narrow it down a bit mum she's like oh it's about um it's about grooming gangs she's like oh it's still going on and she when I was growing up she knew about all of this stuff happening like I grew up in Essex but she didn't really have a problem with it but she knew police officers who had to deal with it um and I was talking to her about it I was like isn't it crazy mum how um people still kind of cover this up and she was like yeah I don't like she couldn't understand why that could possibly be the case and she was like well maybe if people find it uncomfortable but I don't how, how could they find that more uncomfortable than the actual problem itself and I was like so many people have that mindset for like genuinely not believe they couldn't possibly believe that people who are in charge of policy in this country are more attached to kind of abstract ideology um as nice as it might seem in their heads than like the actual consequences of that ideology when it plays out. So like she couldn't understand that there were people who were willing to essentially take the the line of like you have to sh- shut up for the good of cohesion. She just thought that was like completely mad. Like nobody could possibly believe that. Um, and I think really the only people that do have that mindset, of course, they would go into politics because you want to impose your will on, on onto the rest of the world. I think also that um, it, it, it's partly people in politics who who value kind of abstract ideals over the welfare of you know teenage girls in Rotherham. Um, it's also I think plenty. This is I, it's I think it's one I I think one of the reasons that grooming gangs is still not something that you can really raise in like polite company in London upper middle class dinner tables is because. Uh, like no one who is around a London upper middle class dinner table actually knows anyone in Rotherham. Like I think oh, yeah. the degree of social separation is enormous mm. between those mm. like post-industrial because because we because we have now had, you know, more than half a century of meritocracy of a kind. And we have basically had London sucking in all of the like professional elites and people just no longer have really any social connections with the edge of Britain, places like Rotherham. And so I think it doesn't feel very real. It's kind of interesting though, like that that state affairs also can't continue, right? Because um like mm. I, I'm I'm one of the graduates London sucked in. And um, you know, as mm-hmm. a young graduate who moves to London, particularly when you first start art, you can't afford to live somewhere particularly nice unless you're really, really far out of the city centre. Um so you are actually exposed to a lot of the like unpleasant consequences of um like some kind of broader nice sounding ideological project which has backfired quite a lot so you have like london is a really weird city and where you have like these underemployed like debt-ridden graduates living next door to people whose lifestyles are like subsidized by the state to a certain extent it's almost like a a reverse of like france like the paris banal system where like um in the center of the city Mm -hmm. you have like the economically productive people all living in the centre, and then the outskirts you have the problems. And you know, if there if there are riots, you just you just block it off and it's fine. Because of the way that um, London as a city kind of grew, and as slightly as a consequence of like a, a bombing during World War Two, that's not true. It's like it's not a segregated city um, by class or by ethnicity at all. Like people mm. live on top of each other, um, but the only place where that's not really true is central London. Because central London is now so expensive, you can only afford to live there if you are a like a property speculating billionaire from like Qatar, or and in which case you're probably not actually living there, or if you live in social housing. So it's re- like it's really bizarre, and this is another conversation that I I don't think we're we're ready for quite yet, um, or at least mainstream conservatism isn't ready to take up as a cause yet. But another thing that I think might define the next five or so years, which is people starting to be increasingly hostile um, to welfareism as, as, as like economic growth continues to stagnate and people like it will be another cleavage. It will be people who just um, are like really, really pro welfareism because that's all they kind of know of because um, there's no engagement with the, the private sector whatsoever. They have like public sector signatures. And say so we'll like cling on for dear life to keep those bureaucratic jobs, and like I imagine a younger electoral block who are really really hostile to it because they they've had to grow up in a time of like really really high taxation, 
uh, student loans for degrees which aren't really worth the paper they're written on, the memory of the pandemic still fresh in their mind. I imagine there's going to be a pretty radical shift there where you may have people who are socially like left wing, but economically, I imagine we'll move more and more and more to the right and not for the reasons they did in the 80s at all. Um, so that, that's, that, I imagine, is going to be a cleavage that comes across in the next five years or so. The episode is not over. There is another maybe 30 minutes of content, but it is behind a paywall. If you would like access to that content, if you would like to show support for the show, pay subscriptions are what keep it on the road. Allow me to pay my producers, put food on the table, all that important stuff. The extended version of the podcast is available at my substack, louiseperry.substack.com. That's where you can also find, as I say every week, bonus episodes, extended episodes, uh, the MMM chat community, all of this. Um, please sign up for a pay subscription. It makes such an enormous difference to my ability to keep producing the podcast and grow it even bigger, produce more episodes, all that good stuff. There are other ways that you can show your support for the show as well. You can rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. You can like us on YouTube. You can tell your friends and family uh, how much you like the show. If you find it valuable, all of these things make an enormous difference to our ability to keep making it. Thank you so much. <laughs> <laughs>